0: over the last couple of months, and uh, uh, the story has been the arrival of the king, and we keep on repeating this. The king has arrived. He's made quite an explosion in his entry. Despite there being, uh, there was a lot of sound and noise and uh, eruptions of occurrences right when he came in the incarnation around his birth uh, and, and the, 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 the murder of Herod and all the babies and all of that, but Mark doesn't include that. Then there was 30 years of silence, and Jesus comes back again uh, in his ministry. But that's where Mark picks up. We remember he's action focused. He's always using that word. And then immediately this happened. Immediately this was the response. He's, he's more trying to show a largely Gentile audience. Jesus is the true son of God. He is the true God. He is the true king over this world. And he means business. And we see a little recap. Mark does this. If you look at verse, let's start in 7. We're going to see a a few verses right down until twelve. Paul, uh, Mark does this every few chapters. He 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 sort of brackets uh, sections, right? We know. I'm going to say you already know this. I know, but the verse numbers and the chapter numbers were not inspired by God. That was put in later around uh, around the time of the Reformation. Let's simplify it with that, just to make it easier to find things. So, so but, but in Mark, we sort of have large chunks of chapters and they're bracketed by little recap moments. And that's one of the ones that we have here in chapter 3, verse 7 to 12. So I'm going to read the recap and then we're going to uh, continue reading on because the main section of our uh, passage this morning is, is Jesus choosing the 12 disciples. Such a, a monumentous and, and, a, and a foundational event for the rest of the gospel and all of church history. So let's read Mark chapter 3, verse 7, as we open up the most holy, precious, inerrant word of God. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, that's north and south of Israel, and Jerusalem and Indumia, and from beyond the Jordan, that's right over on the east, and from around Tyre and Sidon, that's northwest even further. Before we keep on reading, let's just recap that because no new information comes to us there. If you have read or listened to the sermons of the previous weeks, there is no new information in what Mark just said. He's just recapping. He's reminding us, I think, especially of Jesus' popularity Because Jesus, uh, last week, after he completely insulted their views of of fasting, and then he completely insulted and mocked their view of the Sabbath, now, uh, uh, the last thing we read was that the spiritual leaders are going out and hiring assassins to see just how they might kill Jesus. So you might think, okay, at this point, his popularity is going out the door. It's going to be hard times because of of, uh, lack of crowds and people chasing him for his life. That's not the case. Mark wants to show us that the spiritual leadership are rejecting Jesus because they hate him destroying their power which is sabbath rules and religious regulations over the people. But then we're also going to see the crowds are still loving him. But in their own very certain way they are also despising the ministry of the Messiah. These are the same people as we're going to see week after week they they come to him for all the wrong reasons. It's okay to want your demon cast out. Not a terrible thing. That's a good and godly desire. But if you're coming to Jesus for only that and not not to be released from demonic oppression so that you can serve the king, then your motives are out. It's an okay thing to want to be released from your uh, paralyzed state, to be healed from your leprosy, all of those things. Good, and that's one of the reasons Jesus came with power to do, to heal those who are oppressed with sickness and the demons. And yet, that's not it. That can never be it to those who are truly following Jesus. He is more than just a healer. He is more than just a great advice giver. He is more than just a powerful man. He is son of God who has authority over our lives. And so we come from that scene of complete popularity. Everybody's squeezing around him so much so that that, that Jesus tells his disciples, go and get a boat ready because if I need to, I'm going to jump off the shore, swim to the boat so that I don't get crushed by the crowd." We see him do that in the next few weeks um, in the coming passages. But let's now look at what Jesus did. That was sort of one bracket. He's, He's popular. He's getting ready to sort of preach from the boat. The demons are coming to him. He's casting them out and shutting them up. But now he goes up the mountain and he calls his 12 disciples. Let's read from verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. May God bless the reading of his inerrant, perfect, authoritative word this morning. What we're going to be seeing here is is the the laying of the foundation, or let's actually say the, the picking of the stones that will become the foundation for the church. The disciples turned apostles, and apostles means sent ones, ones who who are sent out to represent you with your authority. That's what kings would often do. We're seeing here a a very significant portion of scripture and you'll entirely miss the significance of the apostles' ministry if, and I know that many different church backgrounds represented here this morning, you will miss the significance of the apostolic ministry if you don't recognize its complete exclusivity. Let's just cut to the chase. There is no apostles today. I don't care how shiny his shoes are, how how high strong his wife's hair is, how shiny their car is. There's no such thing as an apostle today. Jesus shows us what the criteria of an apostle is. And we're going to see this reflected in Acts chapter 1. I'll read it here and then I'll read it in Acts chapter 1. They had very strict criteria. He called, uh, in verse 13 here, he called to him those whom he desired. So firstly, he's choosing, personally choosing, the apostles. And then it says that he appointed them uh, so that they might be with him. This is the second criteria. Not only chosen by Jesus, but they also have to physically be with him during on-earth ministry so that when they are sent out, they can preach what they saw. The whole point of the apostles. Preaching the life, miracles, death, resurrection, and teaching of Jesus. They weren't there for that. They can't preach that. And so he appointed them also to have this, uh, this authority uh, to cast out demons and do the miracles. If you go to Acts chapter 1, we see also in verse 21 there that, G- that they, they use the same criteria when picking a replacement for Judas. It was in their mindset, we need 12, one's gone. He's currently dangling with his bellies out uh, over a field. Let's replace him with somebody who won't betray us. And so they pick, well, they don't pick, but they bring forward uh, some candidates for Jesus to pick. And look at how it happens. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, that is, somebody who accompanied us, they had to be physically with Jesus. Verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they agree? If someone's going to be an apostle, they're going to be somebody who's physically been with Jesus so that they can preach what they saw. So does pastor, apostle Joseph down the road, was he there with Jesus Absolutely not. He's, he's disqualified. Those men on TV, the guys with enormous churches and budgets, I'm not jealous. I think it's hilarious. I'm not jealous. I like my car and my suit. That's fine. But they are not apostles. Look at what else happens. They put forward two guys who fit this description, verse 23. They put forward two, Joseph and uh, Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen to take the place of Judas. So they're recognizing that the selection of an apostle has to be manifestly the decision of Jesus himself. So they put him forward, they throw dice, not how we elect church leadership these days, but Jesus manifested through the dice that Matthias was the one that he had chosen. So let's just keep in our minds that those who will be apostles have to be with Jesus physically on earth, and chosen directly by Jesus. Now, I know if you're a good Bible student, you're going to put your hand up and say, uh, one big problem, that doesn't fit the description of the apostle Paul, which is why he recognizes that, which is why he says that he was like somebody born out of time. I was born at the wrong time of history because I wasn't there with Jesus. And yet to make up for that, Jesus physically came down and took Paul to seminary basically out in the desert for three straight years. Yes, he chose him individually and he replaced the time on earth with a later period of time on earth with Paul. And he says, Paul says that it was last of all Jesus appeared to him. Jesus has never made, and I know the claims of the of the apostles of the nowadays so-called, I know the claims of Catholics, Jesus has never made a physical appearance on earth since he appeared to Paul. It has not happened. I'm not going to be the judge over what visions or dreams Jesus has given to people the world over, but he has never stood off his throne down to earth to communicate with somebody. That is the privilege of an apostle only. But let's keep on going because that, that's not what Mark's writing all about here. But so, so the apostles had to be chosen. They had to be with Jesus. And then we're going to look at their commission. That was their criteria. Let's check out their commission. He says that he appointed them that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The task of apostles was to to go out and as Revelation 21 shows us, the, the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem, which is the church, the foundation has written on its 12 stones the 12 names of the apostles. Their job was to go out into the world and lay the foundation in teaching and in miracles and in authority and in Christ's name for the church that would come. They were building the foundation, laying it through their preaching, sealing it with their blood. And this is why, of course, we don't have apostles today because you don't build a foundation on the 21st floor. We need one foundation. It's irrepeatable. It's unneeded. The apostles were foundation layers. Then we, we also see that they had a miraculous, supernatural, spiritual authority, which would mark their ministry. They, they, they would raise people from the dead. They would simply send a, send a serviette somewhere that they had wiped their spaghetti off their mouth with and people who touch it would be healed. It happened. They, they, they spoke words and people were healed. They, they did amazing things. That was the ministry of the apostles that we should not expect a one-to-one mirror image in our ministry today. They had something unique about them in the foundation laying period. But we also see, and, and I want to show you how, as Jesus picks these guys, these 12, he is not inadvertently, but implicitly casting judgment to the established religion and Israel of the day. It's, it's not very hard to think. Uh, what, what does the number 12 remind you of in the Old Testament? And, and of course, the, the number 12 was the number of, of tribes that made up Israel. They came from uh, Jacob, whose name turned to Israel. He had 12 sons. Those sons became the patriarchs, the heads of the nation who all the clans came from. And so the 12 tribes of Israel is the fullness of Israel. And and later on in, in, uh, in one of the other gospels, Jesus says that the apostles will sit in judgment on the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a very intentional correlation going on here As if Jesus had said, I've come to this world. I've come to these people who are my people, the Jews. They should have recognized me. They're currently out planning to kill me. Clean slate. I'm starting again. I'm not building up from the 12 tribes. I'm replacing them with the 12 apostles and those who will come after them in a spiritual lineage. So it's a judgment on Israel. Then you also see it's a judgment on the religious leaders of the day. If you're the guy who's gone to seminary, spent 80 grand to get a master's, and then you step out, and Jesus picks the dude who can hardly tie up his shoelaces, who's a fisherman, who still smells like fish, he picks him over you for his team? You're a little bit insulted. And this is, this is the, the, the contrast. The religious leaders are planning his death, and he's picking up a, a, a group of 12 guys, literally from the gutter of society. There, uh, it's, it's it's a mighty Ducks situation going on I, I'm showing my age if you haven't watched the movie it's it's a it's a godly movie to go and watch mighty ducks uh, but but here he is he's picking these guys off no 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 good uh, deal uh, no good reason to be a part of the the top tier of spiritual authority in the world but here is Jesus in the gutter of the world picking up these 12 there's a, a correlation here if you were to go and read second uh, uh, Samuel, Chapter 15 and 16. Sorry, 1 Samuel, chapter 15 and 16. We won't do it now, but it's the story that we see back to back in these chapters. Saul, the king, does evil before the Lord, and God disqualifies him from being king. Next chapter, Samuel, the prophet, goes out to who knows where, out to the the, the household of Jesse, and he anoints this little nobody, 60-kilo kid named David to be the next king. And here's, here's the, the position now. We have these heavyweights, these, these anointed leaders, just like Saul, who had disqualified themselves with their ministry. And so Jesus, like the, 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 the better Samuel prophet, goes out to the, to, the, to the countryside and he picks for himself 12 men who will sit on the thrones of David and judge and rule in the kingdom. So there's this correlation happening that I hope you can see. But let's, let's get to meet these guys. Because these men, just like David came to be an establisher of a great and grand kingdom, these men will shake the world. It is impossible. Hear me say that it is impossible to overstate and overemphasize the difference that these men have made on the world. We cannot imagine what the world would be like without their ministry. They would come to so overturn the the tide of history that every nation in the world would would feel the tremor as, as the gospel comes to their shores. And the gospel of these 12 men, whether they're still alive or later centuries, when their preached gospel arrives, it always saves souls from every tribe, every tongue, every language will eventually translate the words of the apostles into their common tongue. The, the preaching and the ministry of the apostles was foundational and universally effective. The momentum will build until Jesus has finished establishing his kingdom. Then he will come back, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, after he has made every enemy a footstool for himself. And it starts here with the apostles. But can we say, and can we just be really honest, if you were to pick, 12 men to do that universal cosmic task, and you told me that you picked these guys, you could not have picked a worse group of men for the task. There is no redeeming qualities about them whatsoever. They are not, it's not like Jesus even picked individuals who are quite impressive. No, no, they're not individually capable or impressive at all. They have no unifying theme. It's not like he picked, well, you know, at least one group of guys who had gotten to know each other for a while or who believed a lot of similar things. Not the case. He picked losers, idiots, uh, uh, waste of times, nobodies that had been cast out by society, hated by the rest, or had been gotten uh, rich for all the wrong reasons. And for us, I think we say, amen, hallelujah, that Jesus saves that kind of guy, those kind of people. Because that is where we find ourselves in the spiritual lineage of them, sure. But naturally, we're also like the disciples before they were the disciples. And for that reason, I want to start looking at these guys as we ask the question, what is it, what is the type of person that Jesus uses? What is the type of personality trait, type of skill set, nature, personality? What is the type of all that that Jesus can use? There was a, uh, once a very famous rich man who, who's seeking to help a very uh, a poor woman who had asked him, can you please help me somehow? I know you have money and all I have to my name is this, these, these scrap papers that, that I keep my, my, my things written down on, but I need money. And he gave her nothing. What he did do is he took a useless scrap piece of paper and gave it back to her worth $30,000 or more. What did he do to that? Did he turn it into gold? Did he did he dip it in some plat? What did he do? He simply took a pen, he wrote his own signature on that scrap piece of paper, and gave it back, telling her, "Go and sell it; you'll make a fortune." And and that is what Jesus does with his disciples and with us. He he simply takes scrap, and by the very virtue of making us. His, putting His image and nature and name onto us, He makes us valuable, capable of something by His Spirit. And we sung, yet not I, but Christ through me. And so we know, like the disciples, we are not what we are. Priests in the kingdom, uh, bricks in this amazing universal temple. We are not preachers of an eternal gospel. We are not kings and queens with Christ. We are none of those by, us, by our own right. We are those things by the mercy and grace and power of Jesus. And that is what the disciples came to know. But I want to introduce you to the 12 guys because they are a mess. Every time you see the, the 12 disciples grouped in the New Testament, you're going to see them in three main groups. Uh, he, they actually are always listed, even though the, the names are usually mixed up within the groups. The, the first person of each group is always the same. It's always Simon and the other three. It's always Philip, and the other three, and then it's always uh, James, the lesser, and the other three. All we see is that Jesus' 12 disciples had sort of inner circles within it, uh, and, and the, the first group, would, and the, those three groups are always listed in the same order. So we sort of see a hierarchy, or, or at least some kind of organization to Jesus' crew, and, and, and the first crew uh, were the inner circle who witnessed and experienced and went with him more than any other people. They were the ones who went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Anyway, let's just jump into it and start meeting the first group made up of Simon, James, John, and Andrew. I want you to, as, as we go through this, I want you to think who you resonate with, if anyone at all. I want you to think where you might fit in this group of 12 if you were to take on the persona of one of them. Here we start with Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Simon meant reed, or you know, shaky, going to and fro in the water, and Peter meant rock. Stone, reliable, hard, unchanging, trustworthy. Uh, in his prior days, Peter was a fisherman who was from Bethsaida and then uh, got a little bit more economic and moved to the bigger and busier Capernaum where he started uh, working and that's where he's called to Jesus. He's also married. So this, this man, he was as bold as he was ignorant. And he was as quick to speak as he was slow to listen. Anyone else other than me feeling really encouraged that this is the kind of guy that Jesus can still use? He's, he says, uh, yeah, it, the, the, the New Testament shows us that he was, he was like a reed naturally going back to and fro. He was filled with doubt at one moment, then confessing that Jesus is the Messiah and then taking Jesus aside to rebuke him for even thinking about going to the cross and then Jesus calls him Satan and then he's promising his allegiance to Christ even unto death. And then he runs away from a slave girl who says, I think I recognize you. He's, he's fearful. He's going back and to and fro. He is not the rock that he's spoken of as being. But of course, Jesus called him that, to call him up to a rock. He was calling him what he wanted him to become, what he was not naturally. But despite his ignorance, he was naturally a leader. We always see him at the front of the pack when it's listed. We also always see him being the one to sort of be pushed to Jesus to ask the question. He's often the the spokesperson of the group, which means he's always putting his foot in it. He's always being rebuked because he's always the one talking. And Proverbs tell us that where there is a, a, a multitude of words, sin is not far away. The more you speak, the more you sin. We know that. I know that. Hard life as a preacher paid to do nothing but speak. And yet, here's Peter, his, his transformation, not just to me, hopefully everybody, an amazing encouragement, a, a complete miracle of grace, that this man was taken, and on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, he stood, he preached, and 3,000 people were swept into the kingdom. He would then stand to, to confront and to rebuke the religious and political leaders of the day, even though he got thrown into prison or beaten up continuously, he was a man of rock-solid boldness. He was a man who would come to write two letters, First and Second Peter, and he also oversaw the gospel of Mark that we read today. It it was his apostolic authority that guided Mark, that told Mark what had happened. And that's why the book of Mark has so many insights into the stupidities of Peter that only Peter could have known. It's a great book. It's a great book. He's willing to share what he was like because of what Christ had made him. And yet it was Peter who in the, uh, the, the persecution under Nero, he sealed his witness with his blood. When he was taken by the Romans, he was hung upside down and crucified that way because he refused to be crucified the same way as Jesus. He wasn't worthy of it, he said. So he was hung upside down. He died that way, leaving his wife behind, though church history tells us she died with him. And he sealed his testimony in the blood of himself and, of course, of the Lamb. Are you encouraged by that transformation? Encouraged to think that one of the types of people Jesus uses is the loud loud-mouth, quick speaker, slow listener, idiot. I am. I am. James and John were then next, number two and three in the first group. James and John. Now you know there's there's trouble and then there's two brothers together, kind of trouble. And and there's testosterone and then there's two brothers together, kind of test, test te, you know what I'm saying. Testosterone. Uh, and these guys were fishermen. So, so they were out on a boat together. They were working hard together. They were just dudes. They did not shower because they kept telling their mum and their wives, I work in the ocean. It's basically a shower anyway. Get off my back. They had calloused hands. They probably had very uh, uh, strong language being used. Lots of censoring happening in the first few years of, of the ministry with them. And Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. This apostle who would come later to write all about love, and how God so loved the world, John would write in his gospel. And in his three letters that he wrote and the revelation, how, how he makes out, uh, the, he was often called in church history the apostle of love. He was the guy who in Luke chapter 9, they go in full of fiery evangelistic zeal and they, they preach to some Samaritan towns who refused to convert, and John's response is, well, Jesus, send some fire, turn them to crisp. They didn't listen. This is the thundery John and James, these brothers who had very little mercy. They were probably teenagers at the time that Jesus calls them. So these young men running amok, sons of thunder. James was the first to die. We see this in Acts uh, chapter 12. James was the first apostle to shed his blood, and John was the last apostle to die. He never actually died under persecution. He died at a ripe old age. They came to be, uh, he came to be, of course, the example of love and fellowship and focusing so strongly on the atonement of Jesus, able to save the whole world, even those still walking around Samaritans. John came and was transformed by the love of Christ. And then there's, there's Andrew, the fourth one in this first group, and he also was a fisherman. He was Peter's brother. So, so you've got two brother sets in this first group. It's testosterone uh, amplified. He, we don't really know anything much about Andrew. We, we, we get less and less information as we go through the 12. Uh, we don't know much about him, although we know that whenever we see Andrew, He's the guy, whenever we see him, he's bringing people to Jesus. He went and he got Peter and then he went and got uh, Philip and and he was an inviter of other people that we see. Uh, Also, the Greeks came to him and, uh, sorry, he he was the one who brought the Greeks to Jesus in John chapter 12. He was a man of love who wanted more than anything people to come and meet Jesus. I, I think a little bit more friendly than Peter and James and John. They needed that balancing act there. Maybe you identify a lot more with Andrew, way more personable. You wouldn't put Peter, James, or John on the front door to welcome people, but you—you'd be a you host. You—you—you're you, welcoming. You're loving. Well, church history tells us that it was in Russia that 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 uh, that Andrew went and preached the gospel to the savages, and it was either there or in Greece that he gave his life in crucifixion for the testimony of the Lamb. Then let's keep going. We're in the second group now. So look down, back at your Bible. I I know I'm mostly just preaching what's not in the text today. I'm just using the names and springboarding to what the Bible tells us about them. We've seen now, uh, we saw James, son of Zebedee, and John, uh, and we saw Andrew, and now Philip. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. This is the, the, the second group of four. And Philip, he was also from Bethsaida. So a lot of these guys probably knew each other. Growing up, they, they'd heard of each other. They they played footy against one another. And here's Philip. He seems to be a lot more of a practical problem solver. When people had problems in the Gospels, it was often Philip that they would ask things for or he would be the one sorting things out. It's actually, interestingly, it's in that sort of vein. It's, it's him that Jesus goes looking over the multitudes, 20,000 people, no food. Jesus pulls up Philip and goes, Philip, what do you reckon we do? It was apparently maybe this this second group of the 12 was sort of the deacon group. And, And so Jesus is just throwing this on film. You're the guy, you look after things, you're the problem solver, what do we do? It was also him that asked Jesus. He said, all right, I'm gonna solve some issues here, Jesus. You need to show us the father before you go. But of course he was rebuked to being told that to see Jesus is to see the father. So there's Philip. We're told that he was killed after converting a Roman governor's wife. He converted the the wife of a political leader, and he didn't like that. He didn't like her new morals, and so he had uh, uh, Philip killed. Now we hear Bartholomew. Uh, This apparently is the same guy called Nathaniel in John chapter one. I don't know where the evidence of that comes, but church history holds that, and all that we know is that he was a widespread missionary all over the known world we come to Matthew, who was, if you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at, he he was formerly known as Levi, the tax collector, the man who had gotten rich from uh, being extortioning and squeezing money out of Jews in order to give to the Romans, who very well looked after him. He had a nice ride, he had a nice house, he had ladies, he had all that he wanted, because he uh, 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 took money from his own people to give to the tyrannical ruler's over him. He became a disciple and I don't care what I lose, he said. said, I don't care what I'm going to miss out on here. I don't care what I'm losing reputation-wise. I'm following Jesus. And that seems to be a a case in the the rest of his personality as we see him every now and then. He threw big parties. Maybe he was a networker. Maybe this is you. Great at throwing parties. Great at getting people together, mobilizing people for for action or mission. that's, That's Matthew. Levi, the tax collector, And he was stabbed to death by Ethiopians after preaching the gospel to them. Converted, changed, and sealed his testimony in his blood. We cannot spend this long on every one of them. We will have to go a little bit faster. This guy, his name's Thomas, the next one. And when he believed something, he absolutely believed it. We're often apt to call Thomas the, the doubter. You heard that? Thomas the doubter. I, I don't like that. I think that's very unfair on this, my namesake, from church history. Thomas was not the doubter. He, people say that because uh, when the other disciples told him Jesus is alive, he said, I won't believe it until I can put my hands in the womb, wounds and, 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 and affirm that it is Jesus himself. And we all say from that, see, he's a doubter. He wouldn't believe until he saw. But that's the same as all the disciples. None of them believed until they saw him in the flesh. And and he didn't even have to touch Jesus. He he saw him, he fell on his knees and cried out, My Lord and my God. It, it's actually interesting. That the reason he wasn't with the others when they all got when they all saw Jesus was because he's, he'd flown the coop. He was gone. I, I think that he was so emotionally invested in this that he couldn't, he was an introvert. He couldn't go mourn with the other 10 guys. He ran, he fled, he went out on his own to cry. And, and the reason I think that he was so much more invested in this is that when Jesus in John 11 says that he's going to go heal Lazarus, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, everybody else says, Jesus, don't go. The Jews are trying to kill you. And Thomas arcs up and says, then let us go and die with him. Thomas was invested emotionally believed it when he believed something. He wasn't willing to just believe on a rumor that his Savior was alive. He had to see it. And the second he did, he was convinced. He gave his life to it and he had four spears run through his body in India where he was a missionary. Spilt his blood there, sharing the gospel of Jesus. And then this third group, let's let's look at that. These are James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. This guy's called James, sometimes James the Younger, or James the Son of Somebody, or James the Lesser. Uh, Basically, all those are meaning is the other James. You all know James, you know, the brother of, yeah, the other James. Not James, even the the, the brother of Jesus, just the other James. There's nothing about him that you know. He's just not the James you think of. Maybe you've been the less popular guy in class and uh, uh, with the same name as somebody a lot more popular, and everyone has to call, hey, you, no, not you, right? Hey, you, no, not you. Never talking to you. If I'm talking to you, you'll know that that was James. Had, we don't know much about him. He was just not the James you think of. Uh, and so there he is, the, the, the young guy, the little guy probably. It, it, uh, he was stoned and clubbed to death. Praise be to the Lord. Gave his, we don't know much about him, but, but his story is written in heaven and there are souls there because he gave his life. James, the younger. And then Thaddeus, this is the guy you always forget when you're in Sunday school. List the 12, you never remember Thaddeus. Weird name. Let me tell you, he has like four different names in the gospels. He, he's almost never listed as the same name because his real name was Judas. I'll give you one guess why he didn't like going by the name Judas. It's like being being called Adolf in the 1950s in Germany. <laughs> not that guy. No, no, I, I know it. I'm not that guy. Just just call me Tim. Just a different name. Call me a different name. Uh, and, and so Thaddeus, who was Judas, who really didn't like that name after after Judas. No one calls their kid Judas right? Or Thaddeus, but neither Judas. And so here's Thaddeus, Mr. Judas, uh, who went by all these other names. He actually went by uh, 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 Lebeus or Thaddeus. These were nicknames. I, I was reading from John MacArthur. His, he's got a book on these 12 guys. It's an amazing, helpful book. But anyway, he, he does this study and he shows that these nicknames mean uh, the nursed child, maybe the little kid brother, mama's boy, maybe is what we would say of somebody, the, the guy at his mother's chest. That's a great name for a dude. Awesome nickname. He was, maybe you're the youngest. I don't know. I'm the youngest in my family. And to this day, my mum introducing me to some of her friends will still say, and this is Tom, my baby. She's up to like my shoulder. I, I, I don't know why I still earned that name, but, but that's a mother's heart, right? You, you always go, this is my baby. And that was Judas Thaddeus. He was, he was always the little baby, always mum's boy, apparently. When he when he was called by Christ, that was sort of his, how they knew him. He was a heart child, which are, which is the name Labius. Either that means courage and kindness or softness. But what we know is that uh, he came. He was he actually had quite a miraculous ministry, as they all did. But what church history tells us is that he was healing, and that he was called by the king of Syria, "Come and heal me. I'm I'm dying." And so he went and he preached the gospel. He healed the king. The king converted, and, and the nephew of the king, it, ray, enraged that Christianity had come into the throne room, killed the king, and, and killed also Thaddeus in order to hold fast the, the pagan religion of the day. Far from his mother's chest, Far from his friends. He was a man in his own right. Far from his hometown, courageously laying down his life for the king. Making kings of earth, sons of God. And Simon the Zealot is the third, uh, the second last one that we're going to look at. We we, we really are coming to a close here. Uh, Simon the Zealot was well. Well, the Zealots were political activists. They they were the guys rioting in the streets, lighting things on fire, killing policemen. That was literally their job. The, the Zealots were these were these men who were Jews. They were even very similar to the Pharisees except that they believed in a no-compromise political ideology. If you had any funding from the Roman government, you were anathema. If you had any way that you were in bed with the Romans, either getting power or, or, or real estate or, or guards or any kind of money from the Romans, you are doing the work of the devil. We, we are to throw off the, the rule and reign of these kings of the world. We are to be free for for God, our our king. We are to await the reign of the Messiah. And until he comes, they would assassinate Romans in the street. They would would burn outposts and they would often, very frequently, kill tax collectors, even their own people working for the Romans. It was it was this this cultic mindset. The zealots, in fact, were one of the reasons Israel as a nation fell to the Romans in AD 70. It was them that were fighting the Romans. And then when the whole Jewish nation was squeezed and squashed and pressed into the the walled city of Jerusalem, they were all there and they had to bind together and fight the Romans. The zealots, because they could tell that other people were willing to make a truce with the Romans, lit the whole storehouse of food on fire to make them fight more desperately. It was them who incited civil war and killed thousands of their own people simply because they wanted the power. It was these zealots who would, everybody carried swords back then, but they were active. Their blades always dripping with blood. It was Simon the zealot that Jesus picked to come onto the team. Can you think of somebody he wouldn't have been a big fan of serving alongside? Matthew, the tax collector. There they are sitting together. This is like, this is like, a, a Bob Catter, Pauline Hansen fan with a shotgun in hand after going pig and coming into town uh, who, who believes in strong border policies and he hates the doll and here he is, he's chewing tobacco and then right next to him is, is, a, is a third year university student studying some arts and political science who believes in climate activism and waves the Greens flag and, and, there, and there she is and there he is and they're right next to each other and they're leading a mission trip for your church. You trust that team? (laughs) You want to fall in line behind them? Maybe a bit more of a church analogy. You've got you've got the fundamentalist Arminian Baptist guy who thinks if you're a dude with long hair or a chick in jeans, you belong to the devil. And there's no, uh, ba- uh, no, no, no instrument except the organ. And, and, uh, and, and that's him, that's his religion. And, and then there's the other guy who's come from, from, from Hillsong with long hair and tight jeans. And you don't worship unless there's smoke coming out of the, the, the room. And, and, and here they are, they're right next to each other. And they're about to go and start a church plant. Are you falling in line behind them? that's what Jesus does. An upcoming murder victim, Matthew, and an upcoming murderer, Zealot Simon, put together on the one team, and Jesus held them in unity, sanctified them by his blood and his teaching and his spirit, empowered them on the mission, and they both served alongside each other. What we have is, is this, being a witness to the power of Jesus Christ. Simon, like Matthew, like his enemy, apparently, like his brother Matthew, also shed his blood for his newfound king. Not on a cultic political raid, not in a revolt, but in preaching the gospel of new kingdom warfare. He didn't kill his enemies, but he gave his life for them as Jesus showed him. And the Persians killed him for refusing to sacrifice to their son God. That's Simon the Zealot, turned zealous for a new king. Maybe you identify a little bit more with him. Don't put your hand up. Don't put your hand up. And then lastly, there's Judas Iscariot. And he's always called, in all the the, the Gospels, he's simply either called one of the 12 or the one who betrayed him. There's nothing else you need to know about Judas this in itself is mind-boggling. This is a, 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 a stupor when you think about it. You, you simply fall out of reason, these two phrases. One of the 12 and one who betrayed him. Jesus, the creator, the eternal God, was going to take on human form and come to earth for, and have just a three-year ministry. He was going to pick not millions, not hundreds, not thousands, just twelve. He's gonna pick 12 guys. They were gonna be his inner circle, they were gonna be with him at all times. Imagine what you would give to be one of the 12, how exclusive that is. And Judas was one of the 12. And yet he was the one who betrayed him. How, how can you be so close? and make such a disastrous decision. A lot of people think that Judas was was a saint like the rest of them, but who had a terrible day. And, you know, we, we judged him by his last day's mistake, and we really are too harsh on that. But that's not the case. From the beginning, we're told, in John 11, from the beginning, Judas was stealing money that was donated to support the 12 disciples. He was the the money bag holder. He was the the accountant, the treasurer for the church, the for the twelve disciples. and whenever there was donations given, it would be one for the bag, one for Judas. and And what he kept you see, Judas keep on getting annoyed at is all the giving away, all the helping other people that Jesus keeps on doing. he's he's frustrated. We need to monetize the healing Jesus. and he was making no money. He gave up. and so instead he sold Jesus for thirty lousy lousy pieces of silver to at least try and make a buck. It was him who, friends, let's think of ourselves. Do we resonate with Judas here? we have an outward form of godliness and, and power and Christianity and a nearness to Jesus without a genuine repentance and a fleeing from sin in our heart, affirming right doctrine, hiding sin as a lifestyle behind closed doors? Judas, was condemned for his sin. And it was made all the worse that Jesus brought him so close. The more you know, the more you experience, the higher your judgment will be if you do not repent. Let's take seriously this warning that stands to Christians of all ages. Jesus said of him, it would have been better that he was not born. So let's ask again, who does the father bring to Jesus? Who does Jesus pick for world-changing mission in his kingdom? The answer is absolutely anybody. Absolutely anybody of any background, character, sins, politics, Age, personalities, upbringings, denominations. We don't care who you are, where you have been. Jesus knows it. And with an unqualified universal call, unlike the call to the apostles, to us, he says, come and join this kingdom. Repent of your sin. Leave it behind for Christ has died. The the foundation has at its center the Christ, the cornerstone, whose blood washes whose power empowers, whose holiness spreads to us and whose righteousness is given to us so that we can be righteous in the eyes of God if you would only look at his cross and his resurrection as a triumph over the grave, sin and death as yours. Consider that by faith and you are a child of God, forgiven and righteous in every sense. And like the 12 disciples, we hold firmly in our mind, yet... Not I, but Christ through me. Let's pray. Can you bow your head with me? As Lord, we, we reflect back on the, the colorful uh, uh, tapestry that is the 12 disciples. No one of them exactly alike. Some of them we know a lot about and some of them we know almost nothing about. But to you, they are more than names on paper. They are names that have been graven into Christ's palm. They are souls that have been saved by his death on the cross. And they are people who lived lives empowered by the Spirit to the glory of your Son. And I pray, God, that we sitting here, those listening at home, we would never make an excuse of personality or background or inclination and and seek to draw back from some kind of ministry service because of who we are. Let us be more confident on who you are and what you have done than who we are and what we have done. God, may you empower us with the encouragement from the disciples and may we be people of the book, people who who do not let their blood and their ministry and your spirit in them go to waste. But what they produced was the gospel preaching and the writing of the New Testament. May we be people who honor their legacy by reading that book, dwelling on their letters and praying that you would empower us to do much like them. God, may you be glorified in our final singing and in our living of this, your commandments. In your son's name, we pray all these things. Amen.